Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth, where we're exploring all sorts of business topics. Experts from around the world join me, your host, Diane Helbig, for a conversation where they share their expertise with all of you. Take what you need, when you need it. Featured on Inc.com, Forbes, and MSNBC's Your Business, this podcast is recognized as one of the best podcasts for small business, sales, leadership, social media, and more. When it comes to business, Accelerate Your Business Growth has got it covered. And now on with the show. My guest today is Max Trailer. Max coaches consultants and strategy teams to productize their services. He's also the host of the interview show, Beers with Max. He authored the book, Agency Survival Guide, How to Productize Consulting Services and Do Other Things Better Too, and won a Stevie Awards Bronze Medal in 2021 for International Entrepreneur of the Year in the Business and Professional Services category. Congratulations and thanks for joining me, Max. Pleasure to be here, Diane. I am happy to have you here. We're going to be talking about a variety of, of things as they pertain to small business owners, consultants, uh, you know, service industry sorts of folks. And I'd like to start with um, a question that I have. I'm curious about where you think most people get stuck you know, business owners, where do you think they seem to get stuck the most? Wow. Um, <laughs> well, I, so I, I will answer your question directly, but I, I think that people feel stuck first because they don't truly understand where they're trying to go. Ah. Uh, the most powerful message I got from my father, I'm a fourth generation entrepreneur, is to put your personal life first. And once you've really figured that out, and I mean, no rules, like exactly what you want to do with your personal life, then you'll start making business decisions that benefit you. And I think a lot of people that start their own businesses start it with a lot of limiting beliefs as to how much they need to be working, what they need to sacrifice in order to be happy. So stuck is, I think, I think a feeling, I think it's a feeling of inadequacy that you're not achieving what you should be achieving. But I think most people arrive there because they don't truly understand where they're going. And so they don't really recognize the amount of process that they're making. Um, but to directly answer your question, the, 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 the area that I see most people get stuck is in their pricing. I have met almost nobody in six years. I have a podcast as well. I've been interviewing people habitually for six years. I've met one person that I think is pricing themselves appropriately. Really? Wow. Really. Why? So, okay. So let's talk about that. What's going on with pricing? Why aren't people pricing effectively? Uh, fear and hunger. I think yeah. um, we, we've got families to feed, you know, we're your audience is, is primarily small business owners. We're not rolling in the money. We uh, we have to make enough money to feed our business and feed our families. If a deal comes along, we're going to do everything we can to get that deal. We're not going to turn them down because they weren't able to pay our fees. 
fear and fear and hunger drives us. I think it's the same emotion when you look in the mirror and go, oh, I look like crap today. And yet every single one of your friends and your family members go, you look great today, Max. For some reason, we always see ourselves as less valuable than our clients perceive us, than others perceive us. And I think it's a matter of perspective. We live in the business. We live in our industry. We know it can be better. That's interesting. So is there, so uh, how do I want to ask this question? Like I, I've heard people say, once you set your price up it by 15%, is there some sort of, you know, formula or way that you found that works in order for people to be pricing where they should be? Uh, that's one of my favorite. Yes. That's one of my favorite questions. Um, the price is never right. The price is either too low or too high. And when the price is too low and you get a yes, you don't learn anything. All you know is that you could have asked for more. When you get a no, people's fear is that that's the end of the deal. But no is just the start of a really valuable conversation. No is, the, no is the start of you having a conversation to figure out where the money's going to come from, what they truly find valuable, what they can pay. Your objective should be to get a no, which brings you to a yes that was at a higher price point than you were charging yesterday. Hmm. Um, I was also taught at a young age that if you get a yes, double your price, not 15% higher, double it. And when you wow. get a no, get four more no's at that price point and then split the difference. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you charge 15 tomorrow and you get the deal at 15. Tomorrow you need to charge 30. You get a no, you need four more no's before you allow yourself to go down to 23 or whatever. I don't know how the math works out on that. <laughs> I picked the wrong numbers, but you get the point. Yes, I do. I do. That's really interesting. I would imagine that the people you work with might find it difficult to double their price. Emotionally. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, ironically, I'm, I'm in the business of helping people make their services more valuable and more efficient. The ironic part is they don't need my help to make more money and, and generate more freedom in their personal lives. They could raise their prices tomorrow and it has mm -hmm. nothing to do with the quality of their service in the least. It's just, a, it's just a limiting belief that they're worth it. Yeah. Right. And they have to be okay with people not being able to afford it, that those aren't the right clients for them. Well, let's go back to the doubling your price example. We just okay. got to win it. We just got to win at 15. I say, I say tomorrow, okay, well, the price is 30. And they say, Max, I, you know, I really love to work with you. I can't do that. Well, guess what? Now your perceived value is 30. The next thing you do is you lean in and you say, well, you know, let's talk about this because I'm super confident that you're the exact type of person that I can help most in this world. And I've got some availability. So let's talk about how we work this out. What does it need to look like for you? Now, you might not leave with a deal at 30,000, but you might leave with a deal at your original 15 for half the work. You might leave with the same scope of work you were going to charge 30, but now you're charging 
20, five more than you were before. Or you might learn that they, they really have no money, but they're very appreciative of your offer and they refer a, couple, a few people to you, but your perceived value is now 30. So again, your objective should be in every deal to experience a no. And then in the subsequent conversation, figure out how you make it work. Well, I also think I'm hoping people heard one of the really valuable things you said was it's not that you're going to cut your price and still do the same level of work. It's that what you're going to be able to do for them is different. Exactly. The, yeah. the conversation is, well, what do you find most valuable about our conversation? What is the what is the greatest opportunity in your business? Because there's probably something within my process, within my method of helping people that we might be able to pull out and we could do at a budget and a timeline that works for you. Right, right. That's good. I like that. I like that. Okay. The other thing that I, I mean, there's so many things I notice that small business owners do. Another one is that they, want to uh, sort of be all things to all people. And so they don't necessarily focus on any particular area of their business. And then if you suggest it to them, they're not sure where to focus because like they're afraid they're going to miss out on an opportunity by focusing on a specific thing. So what are your thoughts on how someone decides where to focus their offering? Like say in like, a consulting business. Well, well I, sure, I'll, I'll answer for a consulting business, but I, I do think it applies more uh, to more than just consulting. My, my grandfather always told me you have to know the territory. <laughs> and when I was a naive little boy, uh, you know, graduating college and starting my own business. I didn't believe them until I started to get to know a territory. And I realized that if you are perceived as somebody that has deep knowledge in a certain type of company, because right, wrong, or indifferent, your client or your customer will ask, what have you done for someone like me? And for them, that's the, that's the most highly perceived piece of value is if you understand their business, if you understand their lives, if you can connect with them, if you can speak their own language. And so um, you have to know the territory. If, if the question is, what is the universal thing that I see people could do to charge more uh, and be more effective and, and increase their amount of, of personal time? it would be raise their prices. But in order to raise your prices uh, and charge whatever you want, you have to be perceived as the expert. You have to be perceived as somebody that speaks the language and knows the territory. So they go hand in hand. Um, the other ironic, I mean, I work with a lot of marketing agencies and, and this is why I know it's not a, you know, this isn't something that people are going, oh man, I'm, I'm so, that's, that's such a new topic. I can't, I never thought of focusing before. People understand that it's the right thing to do. And I've seen it in the marketing space because a marketing agency, a professional services company in the marketing space, they literally charge their customers to help them focus. It's part of their value proposition. It is their business. And yet when it comes to their own positioning in the mm. marketplace, they don't do it. Yeah. It's back to fear and hunger. It has nothing to do with 
someone out there arguing and going, no, Diane, I don't think focusing would help me. It's just fear. And you nailed it. It's the fear uh, or the limiting belief that I'm missing out on business uh, if I if I don't focus. Right, right. It's such a it's such a shame to me because they end up missing out on business because they don't focus, but they they you know they they believe the opposite of that. Well, I I mean you th this is one of those questions where I'm like eternally. I'm, I'm eternally searching for an answer, some golden ticket where I could say something and someone would be cured of this limiting belief. I haven't found it yet, <laughs> uh, but I've been experimenting with a lot of things. So hear me out with this one. Sure. Um, the, the fear is that you're going to miss out on business. Well, just stop and think where you're getting your business from today. Mm -hmm. You're probably, if you're not focused, you're probably getting 99% of your business through referrals. Okay, so tomorrow you put a new t-shirt on and you say, I'm Mr. or Mrs. Higher Education, or we're focused on uh, you know, SaaS companies and the first million dollars in series A, you have new business. It doesn't matter what t-shirt you put on, you're still gonna get those referrals. So yeah. where are you so where are you missing out? The the value of focus is to give you the ability to go hunt for new business, to say, I'm gonna go put a, a lure in this pond and it's gotta be made for something. Am I gonna, am I gonna toss a lure in there that's made for bass, catfish? I don't fish, so I don't really know what I'm talking about, but the point <laughs> is I'm pretty sure you don't show up with a hot dog and expect right. to catch, you know, the, the catch of the week. Yeah. So, but you're still gonna get the fish jumping into the boat for no reason. Cause like, that's what, that's what you can count on. Those are your referrals. Uh, so again, I'm an, I'm an amateur analogy artist, but uh, I try. That was pretty good. Don't worry. <laughs> I understood what you were, but I use fishing a lot in my examples as well. And I'm not a fisherman either. So maybe that's why I get it. Um, <laughs> they have to be I, simple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do think um, that that's a really great explanation. Um, I, and I think it's really valuable for people to grab onto because I, I feel like sometimes they think if I focus over here, then I can't take any other business, but that's not right. It's what are you going toward? Anything well, that comes to you, if it makes sense, you can do. Well, I have a, I have a client in biotechnology uh, operational consulting. Like wow. where did, where did that come from? I, I have a client that's a, that's a technology consultancy. Now, I dare you to find a piece of content or personal branding on me that isn't 100% marketing agency focused. My book is called The Agency Survival Guide. My podcast is 100% filled with either independent consultants in the marketing and sales space or agencies in the marketing and sales space or consultancies. So I couldn't be more focused in my personal brand. So why is it that I have high paying marquee clients in these other spaces? It's because I still get the referrals. People have friends in other areas. I can still take on that business as much as I want, but I feed my children and I'm confident to take vacations because I know exactly how many marketing agencies and independent consultants in that space that I can get because I know the math, because I've written the book, because I can charge whatever I want because there's no one like me. That's really great. That's great. Everyone listening should really embrace that whole philosophy. 
It's really good. At this time, I'd like to take a sponsor break. The Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com. And I'm sure you know that Audible.com has thousands of audiobook titles to choose from, but you might not know about the other content. There's podcasts, Audible Originals, Guided Meditations. Uh, my favorite thing is to be able to listen to different kinds of things all on the same platform. I think it's a time saver uh, and it's like a productivity uh, hack for me. I don't have to go jumping from one platform to another. Uh, so we're offering you a free trial. You can go to audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. Sign up for that free trial and then explore on your own. You know, check out the audiobooks, check out the other programs, see what really, you know, resonates with you. Interested in getting some help with your sales strategy? Pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Okay, now explain to me what it means to be vendorified or is it vendorified? So this was a term that I thought I thought of. And it was like one of those moments where you're like, yes, I'm really smart. And then <laughs> I Googled it and uh, turns oh. out Urban Dictionary, if you look up vendorified, it, it basically means, well, so before you understand the, the detriment of what it is to be vendorified, uh, you have to understand that every professional services business um, and maybe even a lot of relationships that you have in a product business, because you still have to have a relationship with somebody in customer service or, or sales yeah. or something like that. Um, you, you're running two businesses. You're running the business of strategy, selling your knowledge, strategy, thinking, planning, the how-to. And then you're also running the business of the doing. People pay you to do things. And only one of those businesses gets to sit at the decision maker table. You don't approach a vendor and say, hi, Mr. and Mrs. Vendor that sell websites. What do you think I should spend money on? You don't ask them that question because you know what the answer is going to be. Ah, I think you should spend more money on your website. Well, thank you. That's very trustworthy. Uh, but you would go to a strategist that doesn't actually sell or do anything. And you say, ah, you're an expert in the marketing space or you're an expert uh, in biotechnology, what do you think I should do? Because you can trust them because they don't have to feed a bunch of employees with science degrees or whatever it is. Right. right. Um, so to be vendorified is the idea that most of us start off uh, perceived as strategic partners, because even if you sell something totally commoditized uh, that you can price shop during the sales process, you're probably understand you're probably having a conversation with them about what's most important and then crafting a solution. That's strategy. That's strategic planning. So most of us start off in that trusted advisor space and then as start as, as soon as we start delivering things that other people can deliver, we become vendors. So the term vendorified is just the moment when your perceived value goes from that of a strategic partner that sits at the big boy and big girl table and makes decisions about where you spend money and with whom. And you move to the kitty table and now you're an order taker. Okay. So it feels like being vendorified is dangerous. Um, 
So how does someone go about making sure that they're delivering while maintaining or uh, not necessarily maintaining the strategic relationship, but the client relationship? Uh, Well, you are judged by what you do. So early, early on in my career, when the, the first thing we would do for a client was put together a strategic document. And I was introduced as a strategist. Like when I'd get on the phone with clients, they'd say, oh, this is Max. He's helping us with our marketing strategy. Um, but I was, at a, I was at a content agency. And a few months later, I'd be building websites or doing social media or writing blogs. And I'd be introduced during that time as, oh, Max is uh, our blogger or Max is the website guy. I was running a, I was running a, you know, I was like 23 years old. I didn't know what I was doing, but I, my title was the VP of strategy. You know, I was, I was full of myself and here I am being introduced as, you know, the web developer. And I'm like, that is like, I'm not even, I'm not even good at web development. Why, why? And, and I realized that you like, people just judge you based on what it is you're doing. So you are vendorified. You are no longer invited to the decision maker table. If you start to do things outside of strategy, outside of planning, outside of decision support, as soon as you start to do those other things, you are then perceived as a vendor and you won't be invited back to the table. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be perceived as somebody that can facilitate that solution. It's like the coach of a, I don't, I don't play football, but for some reason, I always go to the football analogy. Um, the coach of the team never steps on the field, yet he is perceived as somebody that facilitates a win. One could argue that he is the most, he or she is the most important person that's a part of that team responsible for winning games, for winning seasons, yet he never yeah. steps on the field. Because if he did step on the field, he wouldn't be able to dedicate all that mental energy in how to win, how to move all the pieces around. Yeah. So people perceive that they need to do things in order to provide value. Ah. It's not the case. Okay, so that feels to me like no matter what the, the business is, the main contact shouldn't necessarily be the doer. I mean, you know, I think so it's, if you're a solo, I, what do you do? Well, I, you know, everybody, um, there's different options, right? Like in, in my book, I say, burn your implementation business to the ground. I'm pretty darn opinionated. Uh, and I tell people what I think, and I'm usually doing exactly what I'm telling people, uh, exactly what I'm telling people to do. But I, I don't, I don't want to sit here and say, Hey, don't do the implementation. There's a lot of money in the implementation and based on the market uh, there are, you know, there are balloons of implementation work that you can charge a premium for and you can get rich. uh, And then, you know, eventually it becomes commoditized. But the point is um, that you have to understand that if you are trying to be perceived as a strategic partner or sell strategy, or maintain your clientele because uh, they see you as you know trustworthy. Then you need to have a title that says "I do strategy." You have to communicate and act like a strategist, 
And if your organization is also responsible for the doing of things, then you have to have a separate communications channel, a separate role, separate line items on your proposal. Because if you don't, your clients are not going to see you as strategic. They're going to see you as a tactical replaceable vendor. And you're going to be sitting there wondering why you're now competing against eight or nine other competitors when two years ago you were the only game in town. Wow, that is, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about people I know who do strategy and implementation. And I, I've never liked that whole implementation piece. And now I know why, listening to you. Well, That's really it, interesting. It's, an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate part of, uh, I think, our culture. And that is, you know, most of us are, are working for companies. Companies have the money. So most of us, you know, get paid by organizations. And corporate America is organized into three layers. You've got decision makers. You've got doers that follow directions at the bottom. And then you've got this middle layer that makes sure the doers follow directions. And everyone at the top has fought through those layers. And mentally, emotionally, career-wise, they are actively looking for people that they can put into the buckets that are below them so they can tell them what to do. And so when you're interacting with those people, if you show any weakness, if they smell any blood in the water, if you answer an email that says, what time is this blog going live? Then you will be put into one of those inferior buckets. They will no longer talk to you. They will hand you off to a middle manager role that doesn't have decision-making power. And your contract is either going to be price chopped the next quarter it comes around, or it's going to be canceled. Mm. You're put into the lowest common bucket right. uh, that, you, that you display mm. behavior in. And then you're a commodity. Wow. Vendorified. Yeah. That's, that's, wow, that's really critical. Glad I asked the question because I think that's a big, big issue for, for folks. Wow. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Right. All right. I want to turn it a little bit. I, I think this um, feels like a bit of a segue for me. And I would love it if you would talk about the, how, someone balances business development and client work? So that's a critical question for the people that are responsible for both. I, I assume we're talking about yeah. people that have like a split identity. I have to, uh -huh. I have to help people that are paying me and then I have to go find go people that aren't paying me and talk to right. them. And um, I think the only conclusion is that uh, well, the first question is, what are you selling that's, uh, that's valuable and difficult to replace? So price premiums, your ability to charge a premium, which is going to give you the time to do things uh, outside of just doing your client work. So you have to charge more, uh, you have to charge enough so you don't have to work all the time for your clients. Uh, so you have to position yourself and you have to do something that is both valuable and difficult to replace. So that aside, um, the most powerful question in your business is who will pay you the most for that? 
even more so than what it is you're selling. Because if, if we're following the, the track record here, we're talking about strategic value, we're talking about perceived value. So it's more important, uh, it, it's more important to understand who's going to pay you the most, who is going to perceive the most value out of whatever you're doing, uh, more so than um, more so than what it is you're selling. Um, so you have to be extremely intentional about your sales pipeline. You have to know who's going to pay you the most, and you have to get supporting roles to continuously put 40 names in front of you. For some reason, I got 40 from interviewing a sales consultant. I did like a stint where I interviewed for two years sales consultancies to understand how this all works. But 40 names in front of you that represent the people that could pay you the most. And you need to have a conversation with every one of them about their objectives, about their challenges, about their current initiatives. And when someone's, and when you're barking up the wrong tree with somebody, when you get a hard no, you cross a name off and you replace it with somebody else. So number one is you have to be intentional about who you're going after. And number two, I think you have to, you have to find efficiencies. I spend half of my working hours on sales. Wow. I spend half of my working hours on sales. The only reason I get away with that is because every single moment of my sales activity doubles as marketing activity. My entire sales pipeline is the same as my Beers with Max, uh, Beers with Max um, podcast pipeline. Wow. All, the, all the people I interview are my potential customers. So I'm not sitting there going, when am I going to find the time to create content? And when am I going to find the time to talk to my next customer? That activity is one and the same. Interesting. And so I think people need to find, I think people need to find those efficiencies. Um, you know, I learned luckily a while ago that I, I, I wasn't going to write a book to get customers. Um, I wasn't going to do a podcast to get customers. I was going to interview my ideal customers in order to write a book. I was going to interview my ideal customers in order to do a podcast. And so, um, yeah, anyway, I digress. You got to charge enough to not work all the time. So you have the time to do these things. And then you have to figure out a way to directly outreach to the people that are going to pay you the most and talk to them about their challenges. And hey, if you can get some thought leadership content out of it, if you can walk away with a book that makes you look like a thought leader, then all the better. Got it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Wow. Okay. The, you know, this is a lot of... Um, a lot to process. I think people are going to have to listen to this episode a couple of times. Um, and I and I want to go back to what you said at the beginning, because I want to make sure people heard this too, that if I heard you correctly, what you were saying is you first determine what you want your life to be, and then you build a business that works so that you can have that. Is that right? Yeah, I learned that from my father. 
my father wanted to, he's a degenerate tennis player. He's like the, the best, he's like one of the best players in the country between 65 and 70 years old. It turns out because most people's bodies are falling apart, but anyway, he's played, he plays tennis every day. Uh, and he also wanted to be there for me when I was growing up. I, I went to Disney world more than anybody else. And, and when I was growing up in the, in the nineties, I'm not that old. Uh, he was one of the only dads on the block that was actually working from home. Um, and he did that because he made the decision that I want to be home every day of the week. And then had to start making business model decisions based on that decision. And the only business model that made sense for him was 100% residual. 100% residual income. Today, he still makes all of his money from deals that he did 15, 20 years ago, because he said, look, all in order to, in order to have a completely free personal life, I need to be able to sell something that someone else delivers. And I need 20 to 50% of that revenue stream for life. And so he invented that business model. It didn't exist yet. Uh, and people laughed him out of the room when they said, we're not going to pay you. We're not going to pay you 20% for this deal that you just gave us. And he said, well, fine, well, here's the deal. I'll have another one for you next week and we'll talk again. Um, so anyway, that's a, that's a, um, that's an extreme example, but I think people think about their business model in such a limiting view of what a business model could be. Like we all sit here going, well, we have to work eight hours a week. Uh, eight hours a day, uh, five days a week, or, or else, you know, we're lazy or uh, yeah, we, we just, we just have this kind of social responsibility to suffer for some reason. Now the, the, the eight hour a day, five day work week. And for most entrepreneurs are laughing at this, they work seven days and they work 10 to 12 hours because for some reason <laughs> we get more self-worth out of, out of that suffering. Uh, and completely, you know, running out of our creative energy, which is the very thing that people pay us for. So it's asinine and ironic. Yeah. Uh, but we do it and we have a badge of pride. You know, it's the American dream. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> well, it used to be. Yes, it did. But then the internet happened and now we have some yeah. options. Right. And I think we're in one of the, you know, I think you know, now I've, it's I've a been... particularly interesting time for that because when COVID hit and all of a sudden traditional business models got turned on their head, I think it gave everyone the opportunity to look at things differently and say, okay, wait a second, what could I be doing? Yeah, I, I think we are in the, you know, the, the one thing that my father always said that bothered me was nobody's going to understand, you know, how we're doing business, Max. Like he, his, in his opinion, everyone was lost. And in his generation, they all just thought he was crazy. They were like, sure, Bob, I don't know what you do, but like, I'm going to go back to my nine to five. Uh, mm. And in the baby boomer generation, you were considered certifiably insane if you were working from home. Like that right. was the way it was. And then in my generation, it was slightly more popularized. You had the you had the uh, the boom of the freelance gig network, and I'm talking about young people. The first boom of the freelance gig network, mm -hmm. when COVID hit, everyone was exposed to the reality that you don't need an office. Doesn't matter where you are. Uh, 
you can get new business for yourself because a lot of people were forced to, to create new revenue streams and sell their knowledge. Uh, and there was this vacuum of talent. So a lot of organizations that would previously only hire full-time employees were now hiring displaced independent consultants. So there's this boom of private talent that are like really experienced senior people. And chief financial officers are going, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me I don't have to pay their benefits. And uh, what was that? What was that thing called uh, that, that my grandfather got that like after they retire, they still get paid forever. Yeah. All those like financial obligations for full-time employees, not to mention you can't fire them without legal ramifications. Yeah. We should have been like, this is the way things should have been done for decades. And right. all at once people were, uh, people were exposed to it. So yeah. if you, if you use it to your advantage uh, and build the, and start with the personal life that you want and then ask the question, okay, do I want to work one day a week or two days a week? That's when you can really walk away going, huh, this is working out pretty well, but you know what? You might have to double your price. You might have to triple it. Right, right, exactly. That is that is exactly right. That's what I like about that. That's why I wanted to revisit it because it really is about not um, living to work. It's working to meet your life you know, the, the life that you want to have. And, and, and it is a change for, well, especially boomers. Um, you know, this is, this is a different way of looking at things. It's a different philosophy and probably works better. Well, all I know is I make enough money to do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so work to live, live to work. I don't know. It's more like live and then work sometimes if I need to. Ah, very good. Well, Max, I, I have so enjoyed this and appreciate this information. It is very thought provoking, uh, which is good. You know, it's a good thing. Will you tell the listeners, you know, how they can find you, how they can get your book, your, listen to your podcast, all that stuff, please. Maxtrailer.com. M-A-X-T-R-A-Y-L-O-R. It's Taylor with an R. Uh, you know, the spelling is, the spelling is very complex, but yeah, maxtrailer.com. You can find everything there. My book agency survival guide, the beers with max podcast. I do beers with max lives every once in a while. Um, LinkedIn is really the only place I hang out. So lots of fun content there. Uh, yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending this time with me and listeners. Thank you. You are who we're doing this for. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Discover more episodes of this podcast and explore others at evergreenpodcast.com. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And if you're looking to get your sales strategy headed in the right direction, pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day.
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change Podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.